Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Painters Today podcast. Um, So first of all, I'd like to thank everyone for subscribing on SoundCloud. Um, I'm hoping to have the the podcast available via um, some other platforms before Christmas, including iTunes and Podbean, um, because I know that uh, SoundCloud is quite restrictive and not everyone has SoundCloud. But thank you to everyone for subscribing. For new subscribers or for those who don't know what the podcast is or haven't listened to the podcast before, um, it's Painters Today and uh, it features artists that are working and living in the United Kingdom. Um, And it, I guess it specializes uh, in painting, um, in contemporary painting. Um, Yeah, so just a bit more housekeeping, really. Um, This podcast is episode seven, uh, titled Companion Pieces, uh, and features Robert Fitzmaurice. Um, And the title of the podcast shares that name. Um, And Robert Fitzmaurice, Robert's show, um, (laughs) opens, um, opens at the New Format Gallery in London on Thursday, the 4th of October, uh, 6 till 9 p.m. You can go to the private view um, and after that it's open uh, until the 14th of October 2018 and I'm delighted to announce that uh, Robert and I will be doing an in-conversation event on Thursday on Thursday on on Saturday the 13th of October Uh, from 3pm. It's a free event, um, so you don't have to book, you don't have to contact the gallery, but I do recommend um, coming to or arriving to the the gallery at least half an hour before, um, so you can see the show as well and uh, and so on. Um, And yeah, and I'd also like to thank Robert personally um, for tweaking the audio for this podcast. Um, we did have some technical difficulties, um, and I'd just like to thank him for taking his time to, to fix that for me. Um, and just to also say that it's a great episode, really enjoyed interviewing Robert, um, and I loved visiting his studio in Reading. Um, and you can see, if you go onto my Instagram, that's at 23carousels, you will be able to see some of the images from that day when I went and went and recorded the podcast and there are some images of his studio his beautiful studio in reading um okay i hope you enjoy Great to see, see you. you. You're yeah. welcome. And, uh, and you've got a show coming up at the New Format Gallery, haven't you, in, in October? Yes, I was. Got Called Companion Pieces. Companion Pieces, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah, that came out of the first, uh, well, my first engagement, the second floor studio in arts uh, painting open, mm-hmm. and it kind of grew out of that, the invitation to, you know, have a show there. I was oh, looking great. around for somewhere to, to show, have a footprint in London. Oh, great, great. And how yeah. long have you been preparing for that show? Uh, about a year really since I knew it was kind of in the bag um, I've been thinking about that obviously it was the soldier show at Sandham uh, to prepare for but longer term I've been thinking about what I wanted to do and what sort of framework I'd give to the no format show what did I want to say about it did I want another thematic show which has been the character of the show so since my, my last two or three major exhibitions that I've put together have always been about a particular theme and I wanted to give myself a bit more latitude with a no format show so hence the title companion pieces which kind of functions in a more sort of uh, 
it's about process as well as the content. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And speaking of themes, um, the show that you had at uh, at the Sander Memorial Chapel in Hampshire, um, that was a show uh, that marked the the hundredth year anniversary of the of World War One. Yeah. And it was called Soldier. Was yes. That was the title of the show. Yeah. Um, what compelled you to um, to do that particular theme? around Soldier, if you could just talk a bit more about that. I was, my relationship with Sander Memorial Chapel started through doing workshops there. I did various print workshops and a relationship developed and we kind of hit it off, the operations officer and I at the time. And she said, yes, there's an opportunity for you to mount a show here. And I thought, okay, well, what can it be? It's only a small space, but what did I want to do with that space? And obviously right next door to uh, to the room that I'd be using was Stanley Spencer's cycle of paintings. And I somehow wanted to relate to that, especially it being the 100th anniversary. I wanted to do something about a, a martial theme. Uh, it wasn't something that I came fresh to. I've been thinking about masculinity and the male response and how males use power for a long time so I thought well there's a challenge here because I want to be respectful to the space given it's the history of the place but also it allowed me to examine some themes and some contrasts which in a sense were seeds for the the Deptford show so the idea of duality this idea of the male being heroic, but also being a, a, you know facing a terrible cost, mm. male aggression, and the opposite of that, the, the one is on the receiving end of the aggression. There's a duality there as well. So those were kind of things that allowed me to build a show, a coherent show, which allowed me to exercise my figuration in new ways. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And how did how does that relate to your <coughs> practice generally? If you could just give like an overview of your of your, um, you know, of your working practice at the moment, that, that idea of duality and masculinity, and those and those two two opposites. Well, I think for about the last ten years or so, my work centred on moving between taking this, accepting that for me, the human figure is central to my practice. Uh, that when I make work. I'm compelled, for whatever reasons, to realise the figure in some particular shape or form. And also, my the way those figures emerge, aren't, there aren't really narratives there. I've always had this, not a downer, but I've always been slightly removed from the idea of evolving a narrative in my work. I've always wanted to keep it much more closely aligned to thinking about a repertoire of motifs, that I can call upon and put together in a particular way to create a particular effect, yeah, which isn't about storytelling as such or illustrating a particular theme from a play. But I do use literature as a, a, a starting point, a point of uh, a departure point into the visual. It's very important that that I, that I don't see myself as possibly somebody like a Michael Ayrton or whatever that was taking the Minotaur series and building particular, you know, so to me, much more narrative, um, storytelling um, uh, uh, dynamics in the work. You know, I'm much more about something a little bit more symbolic, mm, okay. travelling into a territory. So the majority of shows I've put together and uh, tried to make coherent are taking a particular theme, whether it's male aggression or the use of power or the dynamics of family and also the loss of innocence. So it's a rites of passage idea, how the child starts off as this arguably a blank slate, I forget about the genetics, but effectively kids learn to be bad. Yeah. And then that interests me, you know, at what point, how that, that evolves in a painting. Um, all these are modes of beginning, you know, that lead on to me wanting, getting into the work, and then I think that something else takes over. I mm. like to think anyway that they're, they're strategies for making paintings. 
or, or making a work of art that allows me to 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 uh, cross reference works. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then other things take over. I need to make the picture work in some way. So I, 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 then the abstract side of things take over. Um, more pictorial concerns. Yeah. Mm. So it's, there's a distancing thing going mm. on. There. Mm. And that idea of the you know the motif and you know opposites and that sort of thing. Um, I, I did notice that in uh, in some of your works, particularly at Soldier Three. Uh, and also uh, Spartanesque, I think that's the yes. one, that, that's the yeah. one. And how it looked a bit like, um, like, like the you know the crucifixion. Yeah. And at the same time, we we also spoke about the um, the Greek athletes as well, and how it looked a bit like uh, like a man um, sort of celebrating his yes. his um, victory. Um, but but in stark contrast, it looked like. Like Jesus on the cross, like the crucifixion, yeah. and and after and after I looked at that work and we spoke about that, um, I was thinking about um, about a, a lot of Francis Bacon's artworks, mm. particularly I, I saw one um, crucifixion from nineteen thirty three, which was meant to be Jesus or like a figure be, being crucified, but it, but it looked like he 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 was celebrating and and i could yeah. see and i could see that you know in other works as well well it's also um, i mean that that's also channeling uh, rembrandt's ox mm, the slaughtered ox yes soutine did it too bacon obviously very atheist in, in his approach i've come out of my, my i was brought up church of england i was as a child i was i was i was, I was in the choir i'd go to church on a sunday and so on but but by the time i left my 20s I, I I consider myself at best a sort of agnostic now. I'm a sort of humanist. That's what really interests me. But this idea of um, imagined orders—it's a phrase that comes out of my latest reading. This guy uh, Yuval Noah Harari, the Israeli writer who's written Homo Sapiens and Homo Deus, and he's got another book out there. He says Homo Sapiens is a, is a post-truth species we always have been so these very contemporary issues around fake news and you know what is true and we've just had another uh, american commentator saying truth is not truth i think that's one of trump's uh, solicitors truth is not truth it's the same with religion that if we are now not disposed to venerate anymore there's no assurances around faith there's too many um opposing faiths that one is aware of to actually say this is the one truth we can nevertheless still and i believe should contemplate if we even if we can't venerate and i think that's the fundamental part of looking you know that one lives with the work of art for a period of hours or minutes or whatever or maybe longer if you've got it in your own home and if something comes out of that that process of contemplating but there are no absolutes, you know, we can't believe in, we can't make paintings like Velázquez did, is what Bacon says, we can't do that anymore. And one has to deepen the game, that's mm. a very well-known quote by Bacon. But I think that it hangs true, without being prescriptive, that you have to deal in ambiguities. Now, when I make my work, am I communicating clearly to my audience what it is I want to say. Mm. They've got their own agendas, their own level of interpretation and so on. Something meets in the middle, one hopes. Mm. Yeah. So that ability, you go to go back to your question about those soldiers and where they came from, to reference the crucifix, but also be able to channel the gladiatorial, the masculine mm. warrior in the same pose is something that attracts me. Mm. The fact that I can play with that. Did he mean this? Did mm. he mean that? Yeah. Well, I meant both. Yeah. And possibly other yeah. things too. Yeah. Yeah. I like those open readings. Mm. So you're so you're deepening the game, essentially. If, if I'm, if I'm getting it right, I, I, I'm against willful obfuscations, obfuscation for the sake of it. But I think one of the strengths of, of working pictorially is that you can have multi-layered effects. You you can build like a layer cake 
you can build over meaning and mm. I think that's that, that that is something that contemporary art does very very well mm. in a way that possibly um, art of previous centuries was a lot more defined and, and grounded in a particular belief yeah. system mm. yeah mm. I think now artists have to be quite agile and aware that their art is going to be interpreted in mm. different ways by different audiences mm. yeah. Mm. There was that artwork though that um, that has influenced some of your paintings. Uh, forgive me if I'm getting the name wrong. Is it Breda or Breda? It, well, the Surrender of Breda. I, yeah, I, Surrender I, of Breda. Um, mm. It's a fantastic painting it by, by, by Velasquez. And it's quite quite agile in a way because because we've had that conversation where it it looks like it's producing multiple meanings. So mm. um, I'm just trying to explain, um, but it's got. Two two sides, two oppositional sides that are meeting, yeah. and they're both. And one is sub subservient to the other side, yeah. uh, and the and and two two men are meeting and sort of shaking hands, and they're, and they're trying to um, to to produce peace, you know, and that sort of thing. Um, but you could see m multiple meanings in that, can't you? You know, as two two op oppositional sides, two two opposites. To um, dualities, as, as as it were, in some yes, ways. Yes, that, that that is something that I I, I, I selected it as a mm. painting. I thought I wanted to try and try and reference mm. on my own terms. I I, I can't. I'm no Velasquez. I wish I was, but it's it's a tremendous painting. The basically, it's Victor and Vanquished. It's great propaganda for Spain because it's showing the magnanimity of the victorious general Spinoza, who was this this Genoese general. Who is receiving the keys of Breda from from the vanquished uh, Dutch guy? I've got his name. Um, and the composition reflects that exchange. So, but it's a generosity of spirit. I mean, the the aggression, all the spears are there, but it's latent. You know, they don't need to go any further. They they've sacked Breda, and the victory is complete. And all that's left is for the victor to show some generosity of spirit towards the vanquished. Um, that is something I tried to do by, by actually inverting the image, but also I've built in, I've built in some some visual puns as well. There there are, there are some slightly slightly phallic things going on in there. There are to do with power, you know, the whole idea of the weapon, you know, and mm. so on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to disrespect the Velasquez exchange, but I am questioning the whole idea about war, about conflict. I'm not necessarily, I wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily describe myself as a pacifist, but I see the absurdity and the waste of war. Mm. You, know, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not a, a, a hawk either. But um, yeah, it seems to me bonkers that people get up one day, brush their teeth, and think, right, time for a bit more killing. Mm, I just yeah. cannot cannot understand that yeah. mentality. Mm, yeah. It's interesting, yeah. um, but maybe it is part of the human condition that we are hard hardwired to um, that we are hard hardwired for for evil. Or we're we're hard. I think, we're hard, I think there are times when for, one for one is justified in fighting. Mm, certainly, and yeah, you know, you defend yeah. your family by extension. You defend your village. You defend your mm. town. You defend a set of ideas, mm. and that really leads to justifying all sorts of mm. violence. Mm. Doesn't mean that I still don't find it incredibly of, uncomfortable. Of course, yeah. But then again, mm. some people would. You know, yeah. call me a snowflake or something mm. for that. Well, yeah. so be it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, it's something that is. I think I think we're hardwired for conflict. Mm. Uh, you know, you don't you don't need to be an excellent historian to see the history of the human race and see what we do, not just to each other, but to other species mm. and and the planet in general. Of course, and, we're quite and, destructive. Yeah, of course, yeah. and and taking that, I don't know what you would call it. I, I guess maybe a humanist perspective of. War. That's something that you wanted to uh, to delve into through through the through through the soldier exhibition. You didn't want to kind of um, paint it as a bed of roses, or well, it's it's a paradoxical thing uh, to clarify. I think you know I'm not here to try and save the world with my art. There's no, no way I'm not no, didactic. Course, yeah. I'm not I'm I'm not trying to preach to people at all. I I think really quite in a mercenary way, and there, mm. therein lies something quite ironic, I'm using the word mercenary in a military context, 
these are starting points for me because I know that they're things that preoccupy me as a human being, as mm. a painter. They also then easily slot into motivations for me to make, to make work. I think was it Guston who said that you know, he moved away from pure abstraction or the abstraction he was making, because, as much as I love abstract painting, now. I can understand what he meant. He moved to make those figure paintings because he was angry about certain things that ha don't have to do with composition, colour and balancing a red against a blue and mm. so on. Yeah. Well, when I do buy art, and it's not often, the sort of art I'm buying is quite often so different to my own. There aren't things. I'm buying abstract art. I'm buying something because I, I really love it. Mm. You know. Yeah. But I know, as much as I do sometimes put my foot into an abstraction camp, that there is something else going on with me that I, I have to work with, which is making the figure, mm, working yeah. working with the language of the figure and what that means. And um, I think it's very interesting now that uh, in my latest reading, I've, I've read this book by Isabel Graff. It was a series, the Sternberg Press, uh, Thinking Through Painting. And there's one particular book, uh, which is a series of lectures. It's a bit of a long, wordy title reflexivity and agency beyond the canvas and in there she talks about a few concepts that when I first heard about them I, I, I wasn't sure what they meant and <clears throat> one is about quasi-persons in the painting and agency within the painting and indexality within the painting but the phrase that really gets me from her is this the ghostly presence of the absent author mm. and it's that layer of not of it not being illustration, that the content isn't driving it. There is the mark and the trace, the suggestion of the author being present in the work that is something that I think I'm moving towards and moving away from saying, hey, let's try and transcribe the Velasquez content and put it in contemporary terms. I think mm -hmm. there's something else going on there as well in terms mm -hmm. of what elements I'm putting together. And are there any works from your Soldier series that have tried to, to tap into that? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think the the, the, sold, the, the, um, the various soldier series where I'm actually cutting into the surface and then layering with collage and so on over the paint and then drawing back and mixing illusion with collage that actually contradicts that illusion is another layer of dynamic, another dialectic between picture making and getting the thing working that makes it visually interesting mm. and also um, uh, the content itself which kind of sets up a dynamic between a child as such a child in the uniform there's another polarity you know that the, the, okay is, it, is, is that a child soldier is it a child playing a soldier mm. yeah yeah likewise um, with this one I mean this this figure actually does remind me of the um, of that painting by Bacon I, I mentioned earlier mm. the, uh, crucifixion painting you're it's it's quite ambiguous in some ways like you were saying you, you know you're not sure if, if it's a if it's a cartoon or if it's like you say a figure um, playing at being a soldier or even a figure like holding like a ribbon like mm. going through a marathon yeah and and, and holding a baton let's yes. say or, or whether it is a figure holding a dagger celebrating uh, his uh, latest Victory, killing in the yeah, yeah. killing in the. Well, for me, the, you know, I, yeah. I I don't want to direct or be prescriptive in somebody else's looking, but mm. for me that works because there is that ambiguity, mm. and it to me it just suggests the potential that child is is a, there's a vague smile coming out of yes, coming out yeah, of that. I can see, I can see, and I don't know because again, I I think there's a lot of um, psychology that goes into your work mm. and. That idea of the unconscious coming out, you know, coming out, and I don't know what that says about me as a person. Mm. Like when I see these things, when I see that that little sly smile, someone else might not see it, but what does that? Mm. But when I see that, what does that say about me as a, you know, as a person? Like well, what? it gives you a point. It gives you a point. Yeah. Um, they're all hooks and triggers. Figuration mm. can do that. I think in yeah. in, in, in a way that. You know, the Victorians with their genre painting, they do it in a very, very different way. And that doesn't really 
it interests me to go and look at it sometimes, but it's not something that I want to work with. And there are people working with that now, but it's not really where I'm at. I'm much more interested in a symbolic sort of set of motifs that are are simplifying and making things almost a universe. The whole idea of the figure almost being clumsily realised is very intentional and mm. kind of skirting into dangerous territory doing that. Some, there's obviously a lot of people working with sort of childlike images and there's, you know, artists like, he's not very well known in this country, I'm sure some, some audience will know of him, but Yoshito Nonara, Japanese. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I'm just trying to think. An artist like Cause. Um, yeah, okay. You know, uh, mm. Joyce Pensato. Yeah, They're okay. all working with cartoon or working with infant, infantile images in That's a way. Like, yeah. So it's a bit of a crowded marketplace, but mm. as much as possible, when I'm in the studio, I just have to go with what I think is the right direction to go in. And yeah. here, the figure came out of a, a, a realisation of negative. The, the figure itself was a laying down of acrylic, and various mediums, he existed, his figuration existed before the black emerged around him to give yeah. him shape. Mm. Yeah, That's so. wonderful. And, and um, yeah, sorry to our listeners, I'm actually um, looking at a catalogue, so this catalogue is for the, um, for the for the soldier exhibition, and next to this, to that image, is uh, old soldiers, and I think we maybe spoke we about should this say before. this this work we've been discussing is just called boy. A boy, it, it, yeah, it's, it's boy. on the website. Yeah, it's, it's, on, it's, it's a monochrome the image. Yeah, yeah. Um, but this the, this one next to it called old soldiers um, is a uh, is a lino. Is, is is it a mono? Is it a mono print or is it a lino? Well, it 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 was a failed lino cut. Yeah. It, it, it was printed onto Chinese paper, but it didn't. I wasn't satisfied with it, and like many of my works, they evolved from from things that have been lying around the studio, put back into drawers, into plan chests, and then brought out at a later yeah. date. And this was a lino cut that wasn't all that old, about the Breda series, that I worked over with various wash, Chinese ink, and um, some body colour. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it kind of successfully, yeah, in the, because of the way the lino had printed, the face detail suggested two old men mm. which was very fortuitous yeah so i kind of played with that mm-hmm. and uh, to mm-hmm. me i see it as a companion piece for heart with boy ah yes that you've, yeah. you've got a child with a very sharp object yeah. and here they're exchanging sharp objects ah yes yeah. i can see that now yeah but but it's yeah. much more like two two older two old, two, two old like soaps like who survive sort of talking to one another about their experiences maybe yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. And and this motif here at the back was um that did come also come from the from the Balaquez uh painting and we were discussing that weren't we? We we couldn't decide if, if it if it was like like uh, daggers or spheres or well, maybe a that, gate. that comes originally from the spheres. Yeah. On the right hand side you have all the vertical sphere spheres that suggest potency. Mm. And all the the weapons that are uh, assembled on the left of, of the vanquished side are all at angles mm. and in disarray. So 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 those those reference that rather rather basically, but that's where they come from originally. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. yeah. And and that idea of um, you know the different stages of let's say a man's life going from boy to you know, to old age, that was that was uh, part of the part of the thing that you wanted to capture in in your soldier series, wasn't it? Boy to yeah, to, the rites to, of to passage, mature, yeah, yes. to mature man to to the old age. That was something that that you explored in in your soldier series. Yeah, so I wanted to say that, and it seemed to I I had over five hundred and fifty visitors to the show, which is amazing, and that that was wasn't down to really people saying hey there's a show by Robert you know it was about the footfall that the National Trust property pulls in but what that afforded me was a tremendous amount of feedback to the show from people who had direct relationship they they had people from family members who'd been through that Mm. and they a lot of them were you know it's powerful for me because they were quite visibly moved by that and they said we get what you're trying to say yeah so that was the ultimate vindication for me that I, I was connecting I was making some connection and saying something valid 
because I certainly don't have any military experience. There's no, no way that, it, in some ways, it worried me a bit. That I was, I was, I was stepping into a territory. You know, who am I to comment? But then again, why not? I suppose mm. it's a perspective. It's, it's something that I tangentially have some right to talk about. My father was in a prisoner of war camp, Second World War, and that affected him quite deeply. So I saw what war and conflict can do to somebody's sense of worth. He didn't come out of it particularly well. Um, and that affected him, it affected his nervous composition and so on. So I grew up witnessing that and it was directly due to the war, which he, he had real problems trying to talk about. So there's been something bubbling under there for a while that kind of drove this opportunity. But, um, yeah. Mm, yeah. And there's that lovely quote um, that's in the Soldier Catalogue. Um, the the short essays by Adrian... Uh, Adrian... Blamire? Sorry, yes. It's Adrian Blamire. <laughs> yes, yeah, Adrian yeah. Blamire's. Yeah, um, I actually wrote it like I can pronounce it. So yes, <laughs> pronounce it yeah. But he, he said uh, in response to, to your work and response to that series, there are many modes of her heroism, her heroism, heroism, as both artist and soldier. Um, and I thought that that really, that really resonated with me and I thought that that really summed up the series mm. well. And, and also when I went and saw the aftermath show uh, at the, you know, the Tate which was all again quite quite kind of strangely all to do with the with the hundredth anniversary of the you know of the mm. of the first world war and which is quite which is quite strange because because you're also touch, touching on that as well but I thought mm. that that quote was very fitting with your show and also with with that show at the Tate yeah. and I know that you went and saw that show um, aftermath yeah it was a very powerful show a very necessary show I think that 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 you know. There are certain books and certain shows that you, you kind of want everybody to go and see. And mm. I think especially, I hope, I'm sure there were, you know, schools taking kids there and letting them see to what went on. Mm. Yeah. Tremendous amount of uh, incredibly powerful and moving work. Uh, for me personally, artists such as uh, Max Bettman, Otto Dix, George Gross, Kathy Colvitz, mm. yeah, Ernst Barlack. Those are the people for me that, that, that really I thought stood out. Mm. Everybody's going to have their different different yeah. favourites. But for me, those are the ones that really were knockout works of art, especially the graphic works. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. fantastic. Yeah, I, I think well. Otto Dix. Mm. Yeah. There's, there's such an anger in the work, you know, you know, righteous anger about German society and, and, and how, it, how it had fallen apart. That... Uh, yeah, they're incredibly powerful. Yeah, incredibly yeah. powerful. There was that one by um, by Dix. It was a it was an ink drawing um, of a of a prostitute. You know, of a of a portrait of a of a prostitute stood next to a disabled man, and yeah. the disabled man had been you know disfigured facially by by shrapnel or you know yeah. a bomb. And and it and though I think those those two figures, you know, as you say, rep represented the aftermath of. You know of the war in Germany, mm. how you had so much poverty and and that and that there were you know uh, sections of mm. or parts of um, you know of, uh, Germany that that were just yeah that were just so affected by war and as well I, I know that these are quite well known but Henry Tonks's um, was it the uh, the watercolor yes drawings? yeah. Um, beautiful, beautifully drawn, beautiful, beautifully, yeah. yeah. Again, that strange duality between something that is that, that to me was so beautiful, at the same time as, like you say, very shocking, mm. very brutal. The, the, mm. There was that duality there, yeah. but beautifully drawn. And I think wasn't he a sur? I think he was a surgeon, and he used to draw um, sort of medical um, drawings and. I don't think they were meant to be works of art originally. They weren't, no. no. They, they were purely just a, a testament. I th that's how mm. I understand them yeah, anyway. That, so, that they're they're not the meant exhibition. to be works of art. But they, they look, at first impact, they, they have the coloration, the palette of, of flowers, you know, and, 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 yeah. and, and beauty. But obviously, it didn't take long for you to register what you're looking at. Yeah. And then the full horror comes through. Yeah. Now, to bring Bacon back in, he, in a very, you know, he, he's doing it from a much more sort of prurient, 
sort of interest within such things, but he would talk about the open mouth and the scream, and you know, he's looking at Potemkin, and you know, about the, the, the nurse in Potemkin with the pram going yeah. down and the scream. Yeah. There, and he wanted to make the open mouth and the scream like it like Monet would paint a sunset or something. He talked mm. about beauty there. Yeah. Well, that's very different to what Tonks was doing. But I must admit, I've come out of like an existentialist. I was very interested in Bacon early on in my artistic career. I was working on my foundation. I, uh, a tutor, John Eden, put me in touch with um, Siegel, uh, Siegel's Theory of yeah, Opposites. Yeah. And that, that first kind of got me thinking about polarities and dualities within a, an artwork that opened. This guy, the American philosopher Siegel, spoke about all artworks combining essential dualities. Yeah, and, and it's that combination of two disparate elements that actually make the artwork work, mm. whether it's music or poetry or whatever. Yeah, that's, that's a, an interesting thing to kind of work with and, and try and look at an artwork you like and see whether that is true or not. Now... John Yeadon put me on to that, but he also put me on to people like Sartre, Camus, and the Theatre of the Absurd. And I think very early on, that kind of, I moved away from my, my upbringing of Church of England, and I just started to think, well, yeah, world, the light, world is contingent. Mm. There's con contingency. We are responsible for, for making the world in our own image, if you like. We, we, we've got choice. Mm. And that ownership, that idea that there isn't a heaven and a hell, which is another great duality to work with, um, that kind of shift of emphasis, I thought, was really exciting as well. So I was working in that in that sort of... Uh, my natural interest in Bacon came around that time, but there were other people that, that you even talked about, like Grunwald, who was a series of screaming heads, which are well, well worth... They're not very well known, but... They're fantastic. Grunwald is really known for the Ismail altarpiece, but it's really brutal. It's like a Martin Scorsese crucifixion where the body of Christ is just peppered full of all the thorns. Of, you know, his body is really in a bad way. Mm. And his hands, the rigor mortis, are set in. It's an incredible painting. So there was that there was that morbidity, I think, early on in my work. And then surrealism, the influence of surrealism, which I kind of influenced my early work and then I mentioned Beckman already that that kind of figuration developed on my degree course in mm. Sunderland and it was when I got to Reading for my postgraduate I met Adrian Heath that that more cerebral his his background you know he's a British constructivist artist working with Kenneth and Mary Martin and Gillian Wise Anthony Hill and so on Passmore I met, I encountered then a totally different mindset about what it was to make art and make painting, make a visual statement. Mm. And that that approach, I think he could see in my work that there was something going on with my shift between figuration and abstraction that needed to be developed. And he set me on that track as well, which we would talk about significance and identity when it mm. comes to form. And that, that old, slightly out of favour now, the old idea of form and content, the dialogue between form and content and significant form, the old Clive Bell thing and so on. That's all kind of been hit on the head a bit now. But it kind of makes sense to me still, the whole idea that why why does a particular form, why does something function and retain the interest of the, the audience in a way that maybe another one doesn't? Mm. What endures? I still, still think it's got legs, really. Mm, yeah, I mean, yeah. I when when I saw the Auto Human show um, at the Tate, and I have mentioned the Auto Human show quite a lot in the podcasts, um, right. but but I think for me it was the first time where I appreciated twentieth uh, century uh, figurative painting and mm. contemporary figurative painting as well. I always sort of did this, oh, it's just just a bunch of figures and a painting, yeah. you know, it doesn't really mean anything, blah, just, yeah. you know, but for me, and going back to what you were saying, like, what resonate, you know, what resonates with, with the viewer, and I think for me, um, I've seen that show, I, for me, it was the first time in which I did appreciate figurative painting in that way, and for me, 
what resonated was the fact that it, it reached to the core of the human condition mm. the idea of duality the idea of good and evil you know um that we all have that um primordial sense in us yeah. and especially the bacon paintings resonated mm. with me um there was one i forget what it was called but it was of a baboon in a, like in a cage oh yes and yeah. it looked almost like a human figure as well it yeah. had that masculine kind of um kind of angry angry man in a cage but it yeah. was also a baboon and that duality between animal and you know human crossing but yeah that that was the first time and then i felt when i saw the the aftermath exhibition also Mm. at tate you know again i i felt that i actually yeah there's there's some really um powerful um figurative painting out there Mm. from 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 that time and from today that really resonates And and i can see that you know in your painting as well i'm just looking around it's yeah it's really really powerful stuff well, it's very nice of you to imagine me in that context. But what I want to say about Bacon, just briefly, because it, it may be of interest to people, that when I was younger, I think a lot of people, you know, Bacon is one of those artists that, that a lot of people are going to run to because, you know, he kind mm. of ticks a lot of the boxes. Yeah. I would praise him to the skies, you know, I read all his interviews with David Sylvester and things, yeah. and at the same time, I poo-poo painters like, Renoir and so on, a chocolate box, and they, you know, they don't, they don't show the, the whole solly sombre, you know, the sun and shade of existence, you know, and Bacon's nailed it and so on. But to be honest, I've got older. I look at Bacon, and sometimes the unrelenting, the works. No, not all of it. I'll, I'll, I'll make a clarification in a minute. But the unrelenting misery of some of his works and the pain of some of his works are the ones that I find. A little bit too obvious in the same way that um, some of the most sickly Renoir, you know, are just celebratory. Well, they've both, you know, you can enjoy them. Mm. But the guy, I think, really nails almost at a Shakespearean level the complexity of, of human nature is Goya. Mm. And he really captures both sides of the equation. And I, I still love Bacon. You know, I've got a lot of time for Bacon. Yeah. I think he's best when he's more nuanced. When he does the portraits, he's very good. He, he's taken on Picasso and he's doing something else with it. He's looking at the head and how to make a face or how to make a presence capture somebody. But he's really nailed it. And some of the men in rooms, I think they're from the mid-50s, where there's a large Prussian blue stain and just a guy in a suit in a dark room, where they're not contained by these, these devices. Mm. I think they're really successful. And then yeah. the great triptiches in the, in the early 70s. Yeah. I yeah. think that's where Bacon really nails it, yeah. where he's actually kind of doing a, doing a, a, a... He's channeling Matisse sometimes in terms of those large expanses of, of colour mm. and interval. You know, yeah. Super. Mm. But... Um, but you were saying about Goya. You, you think Goya, Goya nails it. Great. He, he, when we're talking about the human condition and madness and, and the the... The depths that people can go to, and what we can do to each other, then well, I mm. think Goya, Goya yeah. really, really nails mm. it. Mm. And some of some of his his little paintings and his Capriccio series, you know, and the disasters of war, fantastic. Mm. But another person that we should mention, obviously, 1932, the big Picasso show this year. Picasso has been a big influence on me. I think there's an awful lot that one can learn. From, from him, he's just tremendous. But he he has, there is tenderness in Picasso's work, but I, I, I kind of came up with this the other day. The tenderness that's there is the tenderness of the executioner. You know, the guy that knows that you're going to be taken out and so on. He's going to chop your head off, but he makes you comfortable before he does it. <laughs> and I think that's true. He, he really is, you know, he's pretty unforgiving, but he... He also, there's a tremendous amount of positive force that, that Picasso can channel. If you look at the Bollard suite or whatever, mm. there, there's a beautiful lyricism in his work. Mm. So he, there really is that, that salty sombre. There's a duality there, mm. all in one man. Mm. He could be monster. He, he, could, yeah. he, he, he could be incredibly sweet as yeah, well. But the, putting mm. them together, you've got the yeah. tenderness of the executioner. Yeah. Yeah, well, of course, yeah. Picasso was 
almost obsessed with that motif of the bull. Yeah. The bull and the you know the masculine, masculine man. Yeah. And he took that quite far. Uh, I thought in his work. Yeah, oh, he's an incredible egotist, you know, and that's not particularly attractive, uh, you know, and that led to him, you know, um, creating all sorts of, there are all sorts of stories about him, you know, um, which he didn't come off particularly well. Um, but to be honest, that's true of many artists, and it's true of many people who aren't making art, so... Um, I, I'm afraid, you know, Caravaggio. If you look at, start looking at artists who are, who are monsters. Well, there's quite a few of them out there. Yeah. Mm. So, uh, yeah. but for yeah. me, it comes back to the art world, and, and Picasso is important for me. I think he he makes that connection with tradition, and there's something that um, Matthew Collins said, a phrase that stuck in my mind. I saw he it was on one of his Facebook discussions years ago, but I, I remember reading it and I thought. Well, that's a very clear way of putting things. That's what I, I like, I want art to do. What he said was, it's about refreshing the tradition. And I thought, yes, yeah, that's that's it. But, okay, there's certain art which breaks with tradition. It tries to totally usurp it. And obviously that's what happened early part of the 20th century of Duchamp and so on. That's all well and good. But I think I am that sort of artist where I am trying to I'm very influenced in my looking by art of all periods and all cultures and trying to make sense of that in comparative art forms and put that in some sort of order and try and make something that's new and something out of it. Yeah. One hopes to try and refresh the tradition mm. and, and make something that isn't just derivative. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And are you trying to do that in your latest series? So your latest show at the the No Format Gallery with the latest series companion pieces. Well, are you trying to refresh the tradition in that sense, like in that way? Um, well, it sounds very grand. Not not literally, but okay. I mean, we could use it as a, I, th- I guess, as a uh, as a metaphor, as a metaphor, but. But you're trying to um, to push the ba- push the, maybe pushing the boundaries. Yeah. It's a bit of a cliche. But that, that sounds better to me. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, to, be, to, to be very candid, be very frank. I, I I think I'm getting there. I think my practice is moving in the right direction. I think I'm evolving since I've I've been able to work full time. Um, but the tagline I've put to this companion pieces show is basically we're never more alike than when we fight the individual. Mm. And I think what I wanted to try and say there is that if you try and push the envelope in a very conscious way and try and find your voice, it's, 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 it's like um, hothouse engineering, you know. It's a bit obvious. I think people can sense that. So I've always I've, I've tried to navigate a path where I'm looking broadly i look broadly at art and uh, of all cultures and where i'm at especially around content and narrative that that relationship with narrative i'm not trying to push it out entirely but try and work out and refine the kind of things i want to say and bring a greater cohesiveness to to the sort of shows i put on mm. yeah probably try and say a little bit less yeah yeah because yeah, you, you <laughs> if, if that doesn't sound yeah. odd no no it doesn't because you because you because i guess you could say you know you have said quite a lot especially in relation mm. to the to you know to that show at um at sander you know at sander um, the um the soldier s- series and I know now you're you're not maybe focusing on duality as such, but that is something that you're trying to tap into with like sibling rivalry, and um, you know, in the family unit and that sort of thing. Yeah. You know. what, what what I've done with the companion pieces show is is actually take a series of works that I, I basically call the fixer series, which came out of this one particular motif of this rather strange creature with lots of different legs and so on, that evolved out of a, a another series called Blue Boy, which was really about that idea of the child and the toy and this this front, frontal image which you get in, in votive art of, of all cultures. And votive art is something I keep coming back to. I look at Chola bronzes from, from, from southern India. I look at Romanesque art and I can look at Indian and Chinese art and all of them are united by this 
propensity towards presenting a particular figure, normally a god of some kind, straight on. Yeah, and for whatever reason, I'm not too worried what the, the deep reason is. That's up to somebody else to tell me. But I'm drawn to these things, and I, I'm drawn to it. And like I said earlier, you may not be in a position. We may not be wired now to to venerate these things. But nevertheless, they, for me anyway, I get a tremendous amount out of contemplating these things. And then that is a trigger for me. Then I want to make art. I want to go off and make my own version of those, but try and make some kind of discovery in, 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 in the process. And that's why I've, I've, it may seem a circuitous route, but I've moved into ceramics and into sculpture to try and get back to a new form of pictorial language mm. I want to go back in possibly I'm trying to exercise something I think by pushing stuff out to the sculpture mm. that will allow me to maybe explore more pictorial concerns in the painting next year mm. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm hoping to take the painting mm. much much further mm-hmm. and we're, we're sat in front of um, a couple of your um, sculptures mm. now which do resemble your paintings actually mm. um, Particularly the um, uh, well, referencing the foot soldier series with with the, the you know the crucifixion, you know the Greek Greek athlete um, sort of celebrating victory. Um, are these going to be shown in in your yeah yeah yeah, yeah. this one? I mean, again, the raised arms. I mean, arguably sometimes they're straight out like yeah. a crucifixion, but the yeah. raised arms again. I I love the little cycladic figures, you know, mm. the little. The pre-Hellenistic yes, figures. Yes, yes, I've, I've they're, seen. They're just wonderful. Yeah, yeah wonderful. Uh, mm. I, th- I think they're very popular with a lot of people because they look so modern. You yeah, know, they really yeah. do. But they're so yeah. celebratory and, and affirmative about life. Yeah. That I think there again we have a great duality, an ironic duality. A figure with those arms out like that can mm. be about affirming how great it is to be alive. Yeah. And the yeah. euphoria of life. Yeah. But also there is because of the long Western tradition, at, at least, that is also the configuration of a crucifix. Mm-hmm. And, again, which... and again, I saw that in um, looking at Leonardo da Vinci's uh, Vitruvian Man. Yeah. You know, the, it, it looks like celebration or, you know, yeah. of, of, of vitality in life. But yeah. when I saw it again after speaking to you a few weeks ago, actually, yeah, it does look a bit like a crucifixion as well. Yeah. It's a bit scary, yeah. And yet, of yeah. course, all of that, that is, is about the beautiful harmonics of man. Yeah, you know, It's yes. a humanistic thing saying, look how how wonderful man can be. Yeah. And he fits in a circle and isn't, yes. isn't, isn't life good? No. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah um, but yeah, I'm just looking at some of your paintings now, and that small figure, uh, bottom, bottom right there, that little figure, which yeah, is again, yeah, 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 yeah that's lovely. Yeah, that 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 painting isn't going to the Deptford show. I no. still needs some more work. I think it's it, it's kind of there's some nice things going on in there, but I don't think it's fully fully working yet. So I need to give that some. Thought, but the diptychs that are on the wall, they are going into Deptford. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And these, this one here, I, I, I mean, this is this looks completely different to a lot of your works. It looks. Yeah. Well, that that is a composite work um, from earlier painting. I put two panels together and I took some resin and actually obliterated as a ship image on the right hand canvas. Mm. And the resin has gone over. It makes a sort of island obliterating the ship. It, to be honest, if you didn't know the ship was there, it, it, you'd be forgiven for, for wondering what the title is about. <laughs> but I know it's there. And the left panel looks to me suggests a sail shape. Mm, yeah. The title of the picture came after I'd put those. I'd made those conjunctions. And it just came about by accident. I was reading around the subject of duality and I found, I, tr- I came across something else which isn't really about duality. It's a philosophical paradox called the ship of Theseus, mm. which is what I've ended up titling this. That the, 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 the ship that Theseus returned to um, Athens in, yeah, after his travels, was taken out year on year by the Athenians in a celebration of, 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 of his journeys. But slowly, over time, the ship needed to be 
um, maintained and wood needed to be replaced. So ultimately, in the end, the ship became a different ship. Yeah. But the question is, at what point did Theseus' ship cease to be the ship? So it's all about identity, you know, and, and yeah. about yeah. And there's something called Grandfather's Axe, which is a similar paradox from I think the 18th century that grandfather has an axe, the axe head falls off, so he replaces it, and then years later, it's still his axe, but the handle falls off, so he replaces the handle. At what point did it cease to be? Yeah. When did when did the axe disappear? Yeah, yeah they're, they're silly little paradoxes, yeah. but they fascinate me. Mm, yeah. yeah. Do you, do you think that, that you'll make more of this series or maybe move either son into... Yeah, well, into I, I, I think, you know, I mean, all these little stories are great, but what does it mean about painting? Mm. I think what I want to work with is that fragmentary and ambiguous um, climate that we are in, whereby one can lay down an image, but it has multivalency. The, 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 you know, you, you can say many things with one thing, without being willfully obscure all sorts of weird stuff can happen mm. and and that that makes for for good painting i think mm. can do that yeah. you multi-layer it does yeah i agree i agree and i know you know you've been experimenting with um sculpture as well but i can see like this one to me mm. looks sculptural it looks like a mm. sculpture in a painting yeah. to me likewise with this one on the right We've spoken about, I know, Goya um, and Picasso, uh, that have, especially Picasso that has influenced you. Are there any other artists, contemporary and and past artists, that have influenced you? I've made it. It's very difficult because I'm going to leave loads of people out that interest <laughs> me. But I mean, there's, there's so many to choose from. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> just going back over the historical ones, the ones we haven't mentioned that I, I made notes of. There's Praxiteles, the Greek sculptor, where mm. not that I've ever tried to emulate him, but I love looking at his work. There's a beautiful sinuous line through that. Uh, we haven't spoken about Miro, Augustine, mm. both of, both yeah. of those who yeah. working with motifs, and mm. you know uh, where yeah. we briefly spoke about Augustine. Yeah. But more contemporary, um, I'll bring it right up to date in a minute. But I've been looking lately at, at the Germans, you know, Marcus Lippertz. Sigma Polka, mm. especially Polka's use of materials. I, I didn't used to like Polka all that much, but I've really, he's, he's come to me and he keeps coming back stronger and stronger, you know, yeah. as somebody that I, I'm starting to appreciate more and more. Yeah, yeah, I, th I always thought he was a bit of a, just a, like a bit of a joker, you know, a bit of a jester, like, but yeah, you're right, yeah, you're right. I've seen some work I really, yeah. really like. Mm. Um, there's there's an American painter she shows Kate McGarry called Patricia Tribe 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 I never know whether it's Tribe or Tribe Tribe but uh, T R E I B um, I've seen her work repeatedly I've seen some at Freeze and I've seen some elsewhere incredible sort of command single applications of paint working in a sort of school of Paris way she makes little watercolours like this, preparatory watercolours, and once she's satisfied with that, she'll realise the large canvas in one go. Mm. Very, very impressive. Um, Amy Parrott, she shows with Pippi Holdsworth. Oh, I saw I've, some of I've her work. Of, I've heard of the name. Yeah, very original name. and beautiful, beautiful work. Mm. Cecily Brown. I mean, Amy Parrott, Tribe, Polka, you know, there's no, you can't look at my work and maybe see those influences, but... Um, Possibly somebody that is closer to me, although I'm not painting in that way now, is Cecily Brown. I mm. really like her yeah, work. Yeah, I, I saw some of her work in the Auto Human yeah. exhibition towards the end. Yeah, I thought some of it, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm not 100%. I actually prefer, yeah, I'm not too sure about Cecilia. But yeah, I, I think I can see it in your work. I like the all-overness. She's had a big shift, actually, mm. in the last five years or something, away from the work that I really like she was doing. But she went down in size. Oh, yeah. But the ones I really like by her that I, I don't always achieve, but I like the all-overness of her work. The whole surface is active. And then there's a figuration going on in the paint, which you is really, really nice. Look, yeah. You have to look for it. Yeah, yeah. again... It's almost like an illusion in its in itself in some ways yeah. that you have to look for the figure. Yeah, it's hidden. But doesn't she paint um, 
like figures having having sex in in with like yeah. the natural landscape. And yeah, there's all sorts to, of yeah, yeah, kind of. Um, it's almost sort of religious in its way, kind of Adam and Eve esque or, or something like that. Yeah, well, she's chanting, she quite often references uh, the you know, Renaissance work and so yeah. on. She's looking at Poussin or Titian mm, or something yeah, like that. Yeah. There's stuff going on, Ruben, yeah. Rubens. Um, <laughs> other artists that caught my eye recently Eddie Martinez, American artist, a painter and sculptor. The paintings less so, but the big bronzes, fantastic. Really, really good. And yeah. Marcus Harvey, I saw some of his his work recently at uh, uh, Paul Stolper, and uh, there were ceramic heads, great big. They kind of fitted in with the theme of the soldier and so on. He had Napoleon, he had Tommy, and you know yeah. all sorts of things. Mm. But it wasn't because of that. It's, it's what he'd done with the ceramic. How he worked the, the terracotta and stoneware heads and cast them and oh. assembled them. They were really great. Yeah, really, really yeah. good. Yeah, I mean the two paintings I know by him that probably really famous is the Margaret Thatcher mm. portrait and yeah. the uh, Myra Hindley yes portrait, which yeah. I saw. Um, was it London Art Fair one year maybe? Well, it was in the Sensation originally, I uh, think. Yeah. Was it Sensation? It's certainly been, yeah. one, one, one around mm, the time of the yeah. YBA Naissance. Yeah, um, but yeah. I guess, yeah. I mean, there are others. I mean, I look at I look at people like Peter Doig as well. Yeah. Um, sometimes I like them. Sometimes I like them less than. Do you, you know, do you prefer his um, his his more warmer series, like his tropical series, compared to his more because um, he's from he was born in Canada, right? Yeah. From, and a lot of his landscapes have been sort of like winter winter scenes, but I think a lot of his newer work is more uh, like, like in the warmer climates so so the work's are a lot warmer I, I, I think it's not about where he is it's, it's I, I see successful ones and mm. then others where I think I'm less convinced that it's it's a good piece of work mm. you know yeah. every so often I see ones and I think well that is that is absolutely lovely that's mm. really really good yeah so, but it's fine. I, th I, th I think it's absolutely fine for artists to 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 be inconsistent. In some, some ways, it almost needs to be encouraged. I don't like samey artists that, that mm. only seem to produce the same work within a close set of parameters. Yeah. Whether it is good practice for the galleries then to present the uneven work, obviously, you know, there's going to be horses for courses some some works that maybe i don't think are good other people will go for but you know i'm not on that side of the equation in terms of what gets shown and what doesn't mm. but i i certainly know i don't produce great work all the time it's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous to pretend that one does you know yeah. yeah but i kind of respect that ability to take risks and i hope i hope i always keep doing yeah. that yeah and i know that that's one one aim of your companion pieces exhibition that you're trying to to take risk in that in your practice a little bit, aren't you? I think absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah, I mean, the thing about art is hopefully, well, with a few exceptions, but nobody normally dies with art, you know, it, it's <laughs> not a high risk business, but you yeah. nevertheless need, need to really challenge yourself all mm. the time you know it's no it's no yeah. good staying within a, a within a set of uh, carefully eked out parameters you know um i've got a bit of a fear of that actually mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah if you want to follow robert on social media you're uh, you're on twitter on and the, instagram on, yeah instagram. instagram is probably the best one to actually get a feel for what I'm doing, the Twitter one, I tend to retweet a little bit of what I like, and every so often I'll cross pollinate from Instagram onto yeah. onto Twitter. But cool. most most of the latest, you know, studio shots and things go out on Instagram. Great. What's yeah. what's your um, Instagram handle? It's uh, I, it's a bit long. I wish I'd made a shorter <laughs> one. It's it's Robert underscore Fitzmorris. Okay. Yeah. 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 And um, and if and if you want to follow the hashtag for the upcoming exhibition companion pieces. It's hashtag duality fits, and that's fits with a Z, yeah, not with an S. That's correct. <laughs> yes.
All right, Robert, thank you very much. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It's You're really very welcome. much very appreciated. Welcome. And I look forward to the exhibition soon. with the hashtag painters today.